This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. A lot has changed in schooling over the past two years. One of the uncomfortable changes is more aggressive surveillance of students from the students' own schools. It raises questions about both privacy and equity. Cato's Neil McCluskey and Julian Sanchez discuss why this is not the steady state we want. Since so many students have had to deal with uh, being at home while being at school, in a digital sense. How has that changed how students interact with teachers and how schools interact with young people more broadly? Well, every having students, um, especially under lockdowns, almost all at home, um, you've had to have teachers, professors, others learn how to deliver instruction, which includes testing, uh, which includes papers. Um, they've had to learn how to do almost all of that electronically. Um, and for students, that is something of a uh, transition. Many students may not be all that familiar or comfortable with online education, although we saw a growth in online education before um, COVID-19. For professors, it's often even more difficult, especially some older professors. Some just said under COVID, I'm not doing it. I will, you can put a camera on me sitting in a classroom, uh, but I will not be using, uh, I will not be pioneering, at least for myself, online education. Um, and so it was a, it was a, an adjustment period for a lot of people and schools had to learn how to do things differently, uh, than they had in the past. Probably the most concerning thing was, especially at the K through 12 level, we had for the first time public schools and therefore really government officials, if you're even talking about public school teachers, able to peer into kids' houses to see increasingly what they were doing online on their computers. And that led to a whole bunch of pretty novel questions about what sorts of privacy protections are students entitled to? And when do we have, we go from a school to a a search, basically, of somebody's home. All right, uh, Julian, this is a very complicated topic, and we can give some, uh, even government officials sometimes deserve grace. Uh, so what, you know, what are, what are the rules here governing public institutions effectively peeking in on kids at home? Yeah, I mean, so there's precedence uh, in that about a decade ago, in uh, Lower Marion School District in uh, in Pennsylvania, um, there was a school that was without the knowledge or uh, consent of parents or students using uh, monitoring software on uh, loaner laptops that students were given, uh, and in some cases uh, were able to take home. Uh, and this software, in addition to you know, things you would expect, like um, being able to try and divine the location of the laptop, um, had functionality that would take uh, photographs through the webcam and would take uh, screenshots of the laptop in use. And uh, Laura Marion, I think, ended up paying out something in the order of $600,000 in settlements to parents after it was discovered that they had, in fact, captured tens of thousands of images of students uh, at home, often in their bedrooms, sometimes uh, partially undressed after leaving the shower because they had left the laptop open on their desk. Um, 
and of course apologized uh, profusely for doing this. Um, they though were successful, you know, in, in, in substantial part because they had they had not informed uh, students they were being subjected to this kind of potential uh, surveillance. Um, you know, in some cases, it would be well the student hadn't paid the insurance fee to take the laptop home, and so they were treating it as missing. But then they kept taking photographs, even when they were well aware of where the laptop was for an extended period. Um, what we're seeing now is is that this is being done to a greater extent with um, you know, sort of the explicit knowledge and uh, presumably consent of students and their families. That is, um, and there's, there's a couple different types of software really to talk about. I think if you're talking about students at the college and graduate school level, what they're most likely to be familiar with is software like Proctorio or ExamSoft, um, which is uh, more sort of limited function uh, spyware. That is to say, um, this is software designed really primarily to be activated while students are taking tests. So if you're taking, you need to take a remote bar exam or any other kind of uh, timed test, uh, and they want to try and ensure that uh, the student is you know, essentially sitting there, taking it in real time, not getting help, not looking at other sources of information to answer the questions on the test. Um, it does so by trying to monitor them and use various sort of machine learning and AI techniques um, to try and detect if a student's eyes, uh, you know, go to the wrong place to suggest that they might be cheating. Um, this has come in for a lot of uh, criticism from, from students and faculty uh, on various grounds. Um, maybe having less to do with privacy, although there is a measure of that, you're sort of essentially required, if you're, if you're working from home, to have a kind of camera um, view into your home and whatever happens to, to be in the background, um, but also on, on, on grounds of equity. Um, if you have students who are not neurotypical, um, right, they may not have, you know, the ability to control ticks that might make their eyes go places. Um, and so, you know, you have, and also there's you know, questions about whether, um, Sort of facial recognition component of this works as well for non-white students. So there are uh, issues of false positives and students being um, sort of wrongly flagged as cheaters, um, and this uh, potentially being something that disproportionately affects students who have uh, disabilities or uh, you know or or non-white. Um, but with the sort of K to twelve sector, um, very often we're you know, we're talking about much more comprehensive surveillance uh, software uh, packages, the like uh, GoGuardian or Lightspeed systems um, that you know really do more comprehensive monitoring of what a student is doing. I mean, what websites are they visiting? What keystrokes are they entering? Um, in a way that that apparently, at least, many administrators and, and teachers are are kind of actively monitoring. Um, you know, they're sort of checking what what websites the students are going to uh, in real time. And indeed, um, some of these these companies have developed effectively AI systems to try and flag uh, students who may be experiencing suicidal ideation or self-harm ideation or otherwise be at risk and, and require some kind of intervention. So their sort of digital activity um, is not just being monitored physically by students, but being monitored algorithmically um, with the precise goal of staging interventions for students who the AI, the AI determines may be at, at, at risk. Um, I know this is something that's done you know, primarily on computers owned by the school, 
Um, so this is a kind of condition of getting, a, again, a, a laptop provided by the school itself. Uh, but to my mind, this creates some some fairly serious equity issues. So we've got a scenario where essentially it's understood um, students need um, a kind of home laptop or a laptop that they can take home um, to be able to you know, function effectively in their schoolwork. Um, but in schools where you, know, you may have a significant percentage of the school population that's uh, you know, lower income, um, does not you know, have a lot of money to th- uh, throw around buying spare laptops for the kids. Um, so the expectation is, well, you're going to la- use a laptop. If your family does not have the money to buy the student their own laptop, um, effectively, they, they have very little choice but to use the school provided one, which now means um, essentially subjecting themselves to this kind of uh, monitoring at home that maybe their more affluent classmates are not subject to. So, Neil, uh, you know, in the last two years, we've seen, of course, dramatic expansion of schools uh, making use of uh, computer technology and uh, digital tech to um, provide learning services to young people. But even if this hadn't happened, I think there's a very reasonable case to be made that schools would just continue to creep into this area and increase monitoring of young people on school-provided tech or even on the tech that they uh, are just using for school at home that they may own. Um, is, is there anybody who's, who's looking at, you know, what the rules ought to be here? Well, yeah, you're right that what we've seen under COVID is kind of a leap that all of education was forced to take to more online, more electronic provision. But we were seeing more electronic provision before COVID, and we were already seeing these issues about when does the technology become too intrusive? Julian talked about a uh, was kind of an infamous example in Pennsylvania of somebody having a school-issued laptop that it turns out the camera was recording what this student was doing. Uh, we more broadly see, and you saw this in, again in Pennsylvania, but this is not just a Pennsylvania problem, but the Mahanoy cheerleader uh, um, Supreme Court case where schools were eventually uh, essentially informed of what cheerleaders were saying on their texts to other students, not during school time, not on school equipment, um, but that violated what they might call community standards or something like that. And so schools have started to have to deal with the electronic world and decide where their authority begins and ends. And that would sound easy maybe to say, well, if it's not in school and it's not school equipment, then the school should have nothing to do with it. But there's also a belief that public schools are supposed to reflect their communities, that they operate in loco parentis. In other words, they're sort of taking the place or operating on the behalf of parents. And many people will say, we saw this in the Mahanoy uh, texting case, saying, well, look, we want the schools to punish kids who say things that we consider out of bounds, even if it's just about school activities and not on school equipment, not during school time, because those are our community standards and we want to uphold those standards. So we do have a long sort of percolating issue of schools trying to deal with technology. Um, And then it does go into lots of monitoring of what schools are doing and what, I mean, sorry, what students are doing, what they're doing in their homes. And we are now starting to see, I think, more attention to this. Under COVID, we had a few cases of 
teachers seeing usually toy guns behind a student and then reporting them. And then in some cases, the police were sent to the children's homes and and things like that, or the child was suspended. In Louisiana, we saw that, and then legislation was passed saying, look, if you peer into someone's home and you see a toy gun, you can't automatically suspend this student. So we see society now starting to work through what are the limits to what a public school can do based on seeing into someone's home or into their lives through electronics. There are other groups that do this. There's a group called the Electronic Privacy Information Center that has worked on these sorts of privacy issues in schools and out for a long time. But they were sort of, at least within the education space, a bit of a loner. We didn't see as many people involved in this other than, you know, when you use Chromebooks, you have Google collecting information about people. There have been folks who have been worried about it, but not really focused on it. Um, But increasingly, we see people focused on it because COVID has made it a necessity, or at least for a while, it was a necessity for many people to have school officials peering into their homes. These court cases have made it a necessity for courts to deal with it. And assuming that electronic delivery of education stays with us, and we have backed off of it a lot in the current school year with kids returning in person, but assuming it stays with us, we're going to see more of these incidents that'll raise the profile of these kinds of questions onto sort of the social radar. And I think you'll have more groups engaging with this question as that happens. I think, you know, what's extraordinary reading some accounts uh, I've seen from administrators is how quickly uh, administrators seem to have become acclimated to a level of intrusion on the the private activities of students um, that I I would want to think a normal person would sort of recoil at, Um, you know, I mean, beyond, you know, students who may be unwisely because they know about this, uh, you know, looking for, uh, you know, pornographic material or anything like that. Um, Administrators have talked about watching students, you know, fill out job applications and do other sorts of uh, you know, personal activity um, that, you know, isn't, it seems like it would be none of the administrator's business. Um, seems like the kind of thing you would want to turn away from. But um, more than that, I'm concerned about the idea of educating students to themselves ex- expect that level of constant scrutiny, right? I mean, what we teach in schools is not just the subject matter. Um, but also, you know, certain forms of compliance and obedience. Um, and, you know, to some extent, we think of that as, as, you know, preparing from adult life. You should be, uh, you know, trained to be ready to sit quietly and absorb material for uh, a certain amount of time without acting out. Um, but here we're talking effectively about training them um, to discipline themselves even in the privacy of their own homes in terms of their online activity, um, to treat it as normal, that that would be uh, constantly observed. There would always be someone sort of looking over your digital shoulder. Um, and I think that's, you know, frankly, un- un- unhealthy. I think, you know, young people need um, a-, a domain of, you know, kind of unsurveilled space uh, in order to 
uh, yeah, you know, sometimes experiment with ideas and thoughts and saying and saying things um, that you know parents and school administrators might not be thrilled about. Um, but it's part of the process of growing up. And so um, to say, you know, the the mode through which now you're going to be able to interact with your peers, um, again, especially if you're not yourself affluent and able to afford your own technology, um, is going to be exclusively by this sort of mechanism that is being monitored, you know, A, by administrators, regardless of whether the particular conduct is relevant to, to school, um, but also now by artificial intelligence systems that are constantly checking to see whether um, you've you've checked enough boxes uh, to raise concern as someone who might be you know engaged in self-harm or some other kind of risk um, and I yeah I, I think that's creating a kind of panoptic mindset in students right I am forever watched I need to act as though I am always under observations I think it's you know not necessarily a healthy attitude for for people um, you know, being raised to take part in a free society. Niels, anything else? Yeah, um, I, I totally understand and agree to a large extent about, you know, it could be very dangerous to condition kids to think that they always have to assume they're being monitored. Um, but this is one of the constant problems, uh, a perpetual problem in education and particularly in public schooling of how do you balance different goods and different concerns? And so if you're one of those administrators and you are monitoring uh, what your students are doing, in part, that's because you are a mandatory reporter under the law. So if you discover that a child is going to do something that can harm, the, harm themselves or being harmed by someone else, the law says you have to report that. Um, and that's always had some problematic aspects to it because you report somebody and there's actually nothing wrong and suddenly their students, or I mean, their parents become suspect as abusive or neglectful. Um, but you can also understand why those exist, why someone says, look, but so when a child is in school or away from their parents, it's good to have somebody who is watching out for their well-being. They're so we have these trade-offs there. Um, if we talk about the school administrator who's monitoring how well a student is uh, filling out a college application or whether they're getting it in, arguably that is the job of the school that the, you know, the guidance counselor or somebody should be helping those students to get into college. And even the idea that you are being monitored all the time, especially if it's using, for instance, a school-issued laptop, could arguably, you could say, yeah, but that's actually preparing you for the world of work, where if you're at work and you start using your work laptop for inappropriate things, there are ramifications for that. It's not to say that that uh, I'm on the side of those arguments or not. It's that they're understandable arguments. Reasonable people can come up with, can can fall on either side. And that's why we always have to remember in education it doesn't have to be you either get one or you get the other and you have no choice. All of these sorts of values, differences, should be adjudicated in society by people choosing different things based on what they value, allowing different uh, policies to compete against each other. So when it comes to education policy, not to say one side is right or wrong, at least I'm not saying that. When it comes to education policy, we need to give people the freedom 
to try different arrangements, to weigh differently those goods and bads that are involved in this. And, and so the answer for education policy remains school choice or educational freedom. Let different educators try different arrangements and allow families to freely choose among them. I knew we were going to get there. And of course, I, I, you know, I certainly agree with that. But I think for the time being, uh, you know, the status quo, I think we we have a situation where, again, um, there's been an enormous uptick in schools and public schools included providing um, laptops for students to take home, um, understandably. Um, so students without, um, you know, computers at home were not really able to function very well during the pandemic. So it was a sort of a necessity um, to begin doing this. But the, you know, the the reality then, in fact, for lower income students um, who, who don't have an alternative to the public schools realistically available to them is um, you must, if your parents can't afford their own, you must accept this uh, school provided in your a computer into your home to be able to function um, adequately and to, to be able to do your schoolwork and participate. Uh, and then, therefore, you must uh, admit this effectively kind of surveillance device uh, into your home. And that's, a, a, I think, a, a really uh, uncomfortable thing to be effectively foisting on, uh, on at least the, the lower income students who don't have a realistic alternative. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Julian Sanchez is a Cato Senior Fellow. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 